So this week we uh, celebrate uh, Thanksgiving. And in honor of that occasion and in preparation for our sermon this morning, I'd like to begin today's message by reading uh, uh, Abraham Lincoln's Thanksgiving Proclamation of 1863, which was written by his Secretary of State, uh, William H. Seward. Uh, while the roots of Thanksgiving go back to the time of the pilgrims, and while various regional and, and sometimes even national celebrations of Thanksgiving were periodically observed on assorted dates throughout our nation's history, it was, it was this particular proclamation that kicked off Thanksgiving as a nationwide celebration on the fourth Thursday in November annually. Uh, so Thanksgiving as a national holiday, it really began here in 1863 with this proclamation written by William Seward on the President's behalf. And it reads as follows. Washington, D.C., October 3rd, 1863, by the President of the United States of America, a proclamation. The year that is drawing towards its close has been filled with the blessings of fruitful fields and healthful skies. To these bounties which are so constantly enjoyed that we are prone to forget the source from which they come, Others have been added, which are of so extraordinary a nature that they cannot fail to penetrate and soften even the heart which is habitually insensible to the ever-watchful providence of Almighty God. In the midst of a civil war of unequaled magnitude and severity, which has sometimes seemed to foreign states to invite and to provoke their aggression, peace has been preserved with all nations. Order has been maintained. The laws have been respected and obeyed. And harmony has prevailed everywhere except in the theater of military conflict. While that theater has been greatly contracted by the advancing armies and navies of the Union, needful diversions of wealth and of strength from the fields of peaceful industry to the national defense have not arrested the plow, the shuttle, or the ship. The axe has enlarged the borders of our settlements and the mines, as well as of iron and of coal, as of other precious metals, have yielded even more abundantly than heretofore. Population has steadily increased, notwithstanding the waste that has been made in the camp, the siege, and the battlefield. And the country, rejoicing in the consciousness of augmented strength and vigor, is permitted to expect continuance of years with large increase of freedom. No human counsel hath devised, nor hath any mortal hand worked out these great things. They are the gracious gifts of the Most High God, who, while dealing with us in anger for our sins, hath nevertheless remembered mercy. It has seemed to me fit and proper that they should be solemnly, reverently, and gratefully acknowledged as with one heart and one voice by the whole American people. I do therefore invite my fellow citizens in every part of the United States and also those who are at sea and those who are sojourning in foreign lands to set apart and observe the last Thursday of November next as a day of thanksgiving and praise to our beneficent Father who dwelleth in the heavens. And I recommend to them, that while offering up the ascriptions justly due to Him for such singular deliverances and blessings, they do also with humble penitence, uh, penitence for our nation's perverseness and disobedience, commend to His tender care all those who have become widows, orphans, mourners, or sufferers in the lamentable civil strife in which we are unavoidably engaged, and fervently implore the interposition of the Almighty Hand to heal the wounds of the nation, and to restore it as soon as may be consistent with the divine purposes to the full enjoyment of peace, harmony, tranquility, and union. 
In testimony whereof, I have heretofore set my hand and caused the seal of the United States to be affixed. Done at the city of Washington this third day of October in the year of our Lord, 1863, and of the independence of the United States, the 88th. By the President, Abraham Lincoln, William H. Seward, Secretary of State. You know, you look at the unrest that has taken place in our nation and abroad this year. And I think by just about anyone's account, 2016 will go down as a rough year. But you have to say, as tough as this year has been, there is simply no way that it can even come close to comparing to what was taking place in our nation when Secretary of State Seward wrote these words in 1863. When this proclamation was delivered, the nation was engaged in a very great and very bloody civil war. The very fabric of the nation was tearing apart as state fought against state in a conflict that would ultimately claim the lives of over 620,000 young men. Just so you know, that's more than the, all the deaths of World War I, World War, World War II, Korea, and Vietnam combined. 2% of the total U.S. population would die in the Civil War. It was a time of incredible strife, great turmoil. In fact, there was no certainty that there would even be a United States in one or two years when William Seward wrote these words, at least not a United States as we know it. And yet here he is, writing of the many gifts that God has showered upon the nation in His mercy and proclaiming to the nation on the President's behalf that on the fourth Thursday of November the nation shall set aside a day of, quote, thanksgiving and praise to our beneficent Father who dwelleth in the heavens. It's a proclamation that I think we need to be reminded of here in 2016. This year has been a year filled with uncertainty and turmoil, and yet it has also been a year filled with incredible grace and mercy as well. We have a lot to be thankful for as we gather with our families later this week. It's a year like this one that reminds us of how much we take for granted. You know, our prosperity as a people, the the privilege of participation in a democratically elected government, our religious freedom, these are all things that I think we more or less assume to be ours by right most of the time. And it only takes a year like this one to remind us that they are, in fact, an incredible gift from God that we simply should not take for granted. Who knows what lies in store for the future of our nation? What we do know now, without a doubt, is that we have already received far, far more than we ever deserved. And it's with this in mind that I want to spend this Sunday preparing you to celebrate this holiday with your family. You know, Thanksgiving is a very unique holiday in that it is not a Christian holiday per se. It's a national one. But it's a national holiday with Christian roots. And what I mean by that is that it's not a holiday that we find in Scripture, right? It's an American tradition, and yet it's an American tradition based on Christian ideals. In short, it's a national, religious holiday. And so while I'll usually skip over most national holidays, I mean, I don't typically really acknowledge things like Mother's Day or Father's Day, uh, for instance, or even days like the 4th of July or Memorial Day, because these are basically national holidays without any specifically Christian roots. It's different with Thanksgiving. I think it's more than appropriate for us to acknowledge Thanksgiving, because while it is a uniquely American holiday, it's a holiday where we as Americans are supposed to give thanks to God for His kindness and grace to our nation. That's needed any year. But I think it's most especially needed in a year like this one. Of course,
course, the problem, as I'm sure you're aware, is that that this message, this message of thankfulness to God, often gets trampled on or even ignored every year around Thanksgiving. Thanksgiving is a truly great holiday for us as Christians. It's one of the best holidays, actually, when you stop to think about it. I mean, personally, I can genuinely say that after Christmas and Easter, there is no holiday that I now enjoy more than Thanksgiving because of its religious overtones. It's a fantastic holiday that exalts ideas like contentedness and generosity and, of course, thankfulness. It's designed to lead us to focus on things that really matter in life, things like friends and family and faith. And yet every year there's this strange juxtaposition where we go from celebrating all the things that we're thankful for on Thursday to the crush of consumerism on Friday. And before you misunderstand me here, I'm not not condemning Black Friday sales or anything like that. I know for many families the hunt for the perfect Black Friday deal has become a family tradition in its own right. It's something fun that they'll do together as a family on an otherwise empty day on the calendar. I get that. It's a fun day. Enjoy it. All I'm saying is that in the rush of the holiday season, it's very easy to overlook the significance of a day like Thanksgiving. It's so easy to jump right into Christmas and, and start thinking about all the things we don't have, all the things that we need to buy instead of all the things that we do have. And it really shouldn't be this way. You go back to that original Thanksgiving Day proclamation, for instance, and the Secretary of State says Thanksgiving is to be a day not only of giving thanks and praise to God, but also a day of prayer, where we ask God to heal the wounds of our nation, and, not to be overlooked, a day of mercy as well. It's supposed to be a day where we as citizens respond to God's kindness by demonstrating that same such mercy to those around us. Again, Seward says, quote, And I recommend to them, that is to the citizens of the United States, that while offering up the ascriptions justly due to Him for such singular deliverances and blessings, they do also with humble penitence for our national perverseness and disobedience commend to His tender care all those who have become widows, orphans, mourners, or sufferers in the lamentable civil strife in which we are unavoidably engaged. He says, as we thank God for His protection, and as we ask Him to heal our land, let us also show mercy to those who have been so terribly afflicted by this great and awful civil war. Do you see, Thanksgiving isn't supposed to be a time of simply buying gifts for our family and friends, people we know and like. It's supposed to be a time where we give to those in need. It's a day of mercy, a day of compassion, a day of giving, not taking. And it's with this in mind that we're going to start a new tradition at Cornerstone this year. Earlier earlier this year, we took up a special offering at Pentecost for missions and outreach. This was the first of two uh, special offerings that we want to establish on the church calendar. The second we plan to collect next week, and it's for benevolence giving. We get calls from time to time throughout the year from people requesting financial assistance from the church. Uh, Up until this point, we've essentially told them we can't help. Um, And the reason for this is because when we look at the New Testament to understand the purpose of giving in the early church, we believe that the model we see there is that, generally speaking, the tithes and offerings that were collected by the church regularly, the regular tithes and offerings that were collected by the church, were given for the church. 
You go to places like Acts 2, for instance, and it describes how the brethren were, quote, selling their possessions and belongings and distributing the proceeds to all as any had need. And in Acts 4, 34-35, it says, quote, There was not a needy person among them, for as many as were owners of houses and lands sold them and brought the proceeds of what was sold and laid them at the apostles' feet, and it was distributed to each as any had need. In other words, there was this incredibly sacrificial type of giving that was going on. People were even going so far as to sell everything they had so it could be distributed to others. But if you note, the proceeds for those sales are being redistributed to the church specifically. This is particularly clear from Acts 4.32 where it says, Now the full number of those who believed were of one heart and soul. And no one said that any of the things that belonged to him was his own, but they had everything in common. It was those who believed who were of one heart and one soul and shared everything in common. This is why just two verses later, Luke says that there was not a needy person among them. It wasn't as if the church suddenly abolished poverty in the entire city of Jerusalem with their generosity. No, they did it within the church that was there. They were sharing their things in common to such a degree that their fellow brothers and sisters suffered no need. They were all taken care of. That's the model that we see in the book of Acts. The church is is laying money at the apostles' feet so that money can be redistributed for the good of the brethren. And of course we see examples of this in places like Acts 6 where we learn that there was even a daily distribution of food that was taking place for the widows in the church. And of course it was out of the need to properly administer this distribution that the first deacons are apparently established. This practice apparently spread to other churches because after discussing the qualifications for deacons in 1 Timothy 3, Paul gives instruction in 1 Timothy 5 for which types of widows should be enrolled in that distribution. As he discusses those qualifications, it becomes clear once again these widows are most certainly believers. And they're not just believers, but believers who meet a certain set of criteria and qualifications. Quite clearly, the church doesn't have an endless supply of resources to be distributed to whomever they wish. No, they have a a very limited supply that must be distributed with the utmost care and consideration. Again, this appears to be why deacons were even first established. The distribution of the church's resources required such careful consideration that it could easily become a burden to the church's elders and distract them from the central role that they had in the church, which was teaching and prayer. Point being, the church's resources weren't distributed to just anyone. They were given to believers and to believers who met the appropriate criteria. You go, to the, you go to Acts 11 and you have the church in Antioch taking up a collection for, to help the church in Judea as the brothers there suffered under a famine. You see Paul taking up a similar, collect, similar collection in 1 Corinthians 16 and then referring to it again in 2 Corinthians 8 and 9. Both passages are important because they show us the principles that guided Paul in the collection of offerings. And, and these principles continue to shape the way that we approach such offerings today. In other words, there's a, there's a reason why I'm announcing the benevolence offering to you a week in advance rather, just, rather than just collecting it on the spot today. And that reason is found in 1 Corinthians 16 and 2 Corinthians 8 and 9. However, those reasons aside, the point once again is that in those passages, we see Paul taking up a kind of special offering for the brethren, for believers. This is just the overwhelming pattern that we see on display throughout the New Testament. Believers gave to the church for the church. 
The offerings that were to be used, that were to be, uh, that were given, were to be used for the equipping, the encouragement, the edification of believers. And so, as as Clint and I consider the proper administration of the church's resources, and as we consider it in light of the fact that as elders, our authority is a delegated one, meaning that we are not free to use the church's resources however we see fit, but only for the purposes that God has outlined for us in Scripture, really as stewards. Well, when we look at it that way, we really, we really only see two things that we can legitimately use the regular tithes and offerings for, and those are, number one, to support the, the teaching ministry of the church. So stuff like staff salary, facilities, even missionaries, essentially ministry, these types of things we see outlined in several places in the New Testament as a legitimate use of the church's resources. And then number two, to take care of the physical needs of the saints. Basically, we can pull from the general fund to take care of a brother or sister's gas bill if they're coming up short a month here or there. Outside of those two purposes, we're not really sure that we're even authorized to spend the church's money based on the New Testament model. And so again, when people outside the church have called us up to ask us for assistance, our answer up to this point has been, we're very sorry, but we don't have any resources set aside to help you right now. That doesn't mean that we don't have money in the bank account that we could use. We do. We just don't think we're authorized to touch it for that reason. Now, this doesn't mean that the church shouldn't care for the poor. It most certainly should. I don't even think that I, I really would have to argue, right, that the Bible commends the giving of alms. I mean, just go to Matthew 6. It's there, clearly. It's just that as we look at it, that area of your walk as a Christian is something that it seems you have to carry out on an individual basis. In other words, you can't just outsource that responsibility and say to someone else, well, you know, I, I gave to the church, so my hands are clean. You know, any more than you can do that with something like, say, evangelism. And it's not really hard to understand why that would be. I mean, generosity is a serious indicator of spiritual growth, just like evangelism is a serious indicator of spiritual growth. For us to take over either of those items for you is to stunt your spiritual maturity. Benevolence is a very unique and tangible expression of worship because it is, because it is worship, this means that the only point at which it's an acceptable form of worship to God is when it comes from you as an expression of your heart. In other words, we really can't do it for you. It's something you must do personally for it to be legit. So it makes sense that the giving of, all, giving of alms will be set up this way. Giving is something that you must do personally. Now, if you want to give to your, brother, your fellow brothers and sisters, it makes sense that you'd give that money to the elders and deacons for redistribution among the church because they're the organizational head of the body. In other words, if you want to care for the saints, then giving into the church should ideally be the most efficient way because the elders and deacons are supposed to know both the physical and spiritual needs of those within the body Enough that they know the best way to employ those resources. However, outside the church, it doesn't work that way. The elders and deacons do not hold the same position of authority in the community at large that they have in the church, meaning that they don't have the same information at their disposal to govern the redistribution of alms to the community in the same way as they do within the church. So while it makes sense to give to the church if you want to show benevolence to your brothers and sisters, the same can't be said if you want to show benevolence in the community at large. In that area, if you want to show mercy, 
You're mostly left on your own. It's something you have to initiate. So that's been our position. We'd say that we can use the church funds to care for those within the church, but not for those outside of it. That's not because we don't care for the poor. It's just is that we think it's something you must engage in outside of church. Now, the only problem with this position is that we still have folks contacting us for help, asking us for help, and we're turning them away. That's a tough situation to be in. On one hand, we think that Christians should help the poor in the community, and then on the other, we don't think we can use the general fund to do that, and we think that this is something that you have to choose to do yourself. I mean, that's just sort of how it works, though. When, when people in the community need help, they know that Christians have a, have a reputation for that, and so what they do is they call the church. Like, they don't call you, because they don't even know you, let alone the fact that you're a Christian. But they know that churches are Christian, and so if you want to find Christians, you call the church. And that's what they do. They call us. They call the church. So what do we do there? We've kind of brainstormed different ways to handle this. I've wondered, for instance, if we'd want to send an email out to the church when one of these requests come in um, to see, you know, kind of leave it up to you guys to decide whether or not one of you would want to call them back. Uh, maybe we could even ask if anyone would like to volunteer for that kind of a ministry so we could contact maybe a more select list of church members when we get one of those requests. You know, try and find out how can we get these people in contact with the individual members of the church so that they can be involved in this. But at the end of the day, it would, it would seem that the most efficient way to handle these requests and to handle them in a way that we think agrees with the example that we see set in Scripture is to simply set up a special benevolence offering from which we'll fund these requests in the following year. So the way this works, next week we'll take the offering and say, you know, $500 is given. Uh, then until next year, that's what we have to work with. We can help people outside the church up to that $500, and once it runs out, that's it. Again, we're not going to take from the general fund to help. Instead, we'll simply have to say, like, you know, at that point, let's say, I'm sorry, but we don't have any benevolence funds remaining in the budget for the year, and then hopefully give them some other options that they can, can pursue. We're doing this because we think this allows you to take the, a very intentional role in the care for the poor in our community while still recognizing the very practical reality that many of these types of requests are going to be directed to the organizational entity of the church. Does that make sense? Kind of why we're doing that? So that's been the plan. Uh, we want to set up this annual benevolence offering to take care of these types of requests. And when you consider when we might take up this kind of an offering, is there really any better time of year to do it than Thanksgiving, right? I mean, this is a holiday that's supposed to be about mercy. And really... Uh, mercy to our community as a whole, as a nation. What better way is there to set ourselves in the right frame of mind, really not even only just for Thanksgiving, but for the entire Christmas season, than to have this special offering right at the beginning of that consumeristic crush that reminds us, you know, the holiday is supposed to be about giving, not receiving. It's about mercy and kindness, not selfishness and greed. Again, that's not just true of Thanksgiving, but of the entire Christmas season. This is a time for us as Christians to rejoice in the amazing gift that we have already received in Christ and to joyfully proclaim that good news to the world around us, that Christ is born, that God has come to save us from our sins. So that's the mindset behind this new tradition that we're going to start next week with this benevolence offering that we'll collect 
on the Sunday after Thanksgiving. And so now what I want to do with the time remaining here this morning is to discuss the kind of mindset that you should bring to this kind of giving. And I want to do that from a passage from the Old Testament, Deuteronomy 15, 7 through 11. Uh, Deuteronomy 15, 7 through 11. We don't go back here too often, you know, to the Old Testament, especially not the Old Testament law. Uh, I mean, I'll cross-reference the Old Testament as we spend time in the New Testament, but I don't really preach many actual sermons from the Old Testament, and again, most especially not the Old Testament law. In fact, I was thinking about it, and I realized that this is probably going to be the first sermon I've ever preached from the book of Moses. And just so you know, there's a good reason for that. The reason is because, as New Covenant believers, we're no longer bound to the rules and the stipulations of the Mosaic Covenant. Uh, We talked about this a little bit last Sunday evening. When Jesus died on the cross, He ratified the new covenant that was promised in Jeremiah 31, 31-34. This is a covenant that supersedes the Mosaic Covenant. It's perhaps not entirely accurate to say that it abolishes the Old Covenant because it doesn't exactly nullify the principles that that covenant stood for, but it most definitely replaces that covenant. In that sense, the Old Covenant is torn up and shredded. It's no longer contractually binding. It's undone. But understand that it's been undone only to be replaced by a superior covenant. A covenant that still upholds the original principles of the Mosaic Covenant. The reason for the shift is rooted in the changing conditions that serve as the basis, the foundation for this new covenant. For example, whereas in the old covenant God only kind of demanded performance, in this new one He actually supplies the means for that performance in the heart of its participants. That's an incredibly radical shift from the Old Covenant to the New. Whereas in the Mosaic Covenant, it was, uh, it was written on tablets of stone. This New Covenant is written on the hearts of its hearers. That's a huge development that's going to change the terms and conditions of the New Covenant dramatically. Again, the principles are the same from one covenant to the next, but there's a radically different set of conditions that's going to change the way those principles are employed. Jesus established those new new conditions with His death on the cross. He he has ratified the new covenant. So while one could say that the principles of the Mosaic covenant still carry over today, the specific regulations most definitely do not. That's why I don't usually preach Old Testament law. As new covenant Christians, we are not bound to to the conditions of the old Mosaic covenant. However, that being said, again, the principles of the old covenant are still incredibly relevant. You could say that while we, God's people, have changed from one covenant to the next by virtue of what Jesus accomplished for us at the cross, God most definitely has not changed. Right? The God of the Old Testament is the same as the God of the new. He hasn't changed. We have. This is why Paul says in 2 Timothy 3, 16-17, with specific reference to the Old Testament, quote, all Scripture is breathed out by God and profitable for teaching, for reproof, for correction, and for training in righteousness, that the man of God may be complete, equipped for every good work. The word for Scripture there is a technical term that refers specifically to the Old Testament. Paul says that the Old Testament is inspired and useful to make a man equipped for every good work. We're supposed to study things like the law. And the reason is because although the specific regulations of the law no longer apply its principles, its character most definitely do. You can learn a lot about the character of God and of what He expects for His people, even in the New Testament, from the law. 
Because he's the same God throughout. So while we probably would never want to camp out for any extended period of time in the Old Testament law, it is helpful to turn there from time to time as we try to understand what God is like and what he might expect of us based on that character. Well, as I ask myself, where should we go to understand what God's feelings are towards the giving of alms, that is, to the giving of the poor, it occurred to me that there's probably no better place to go than actually the Old Testament law. Again, a lot of the giving that we see in the New Testament is done for the benefit of believers. That's part of the whole New Covenant setting. The community that's set up in the New Covenant is radically different from the one set up in the Old Testament because it's made up entirely of believers. It's made up of those who are born again. Not so in the Old Testament. In the Old Testament, God called and then gave His law to a people who were not categorically regenerated. And then He established commands for how they should care for their poor in their community in the Mosaic Law. This is really, really helpful for us as Christians if we want to know how we are to care for the poor outside of the community of faith, outside of the church at large. This is really the best place to go. We go back to the Old Testament law to see how God dealt with that issue there among the people of Israel. And as I surveyed the passages that deal with this issue, I realized there's probably no passage that explains the kind of attitude that you should bring to next week's benevolence offering than Deuteronomy 15, 7 through 11. So if you haven't already done so, please go ahead and turn there. Again, that's Deuteronomy 15, 7 through 11. Uh, just so you know, I realize that I'm spending a whole lot of time sort of setting up the passages and explaining why we're talking about it. So I'm, gonna, I'm not going to go real, real in-depth here, but from this passage, I think we can see two principles about giving that should guide our approach to the giving of alms. And I want to just very briefly go over those principles with you in preparation for next week and to kind of help you uh, prepare to celebrate Thanksgiving with your family as a whole. Now, those principles are found in Deuteronomy 15, 7 through 11. But to set up our discussion of those principles, I actually want to start our reading of the passage in Deuteronomy 14, verse 22. So maybe flip back a page in your Bible to start there, Deuteronomy 14, 22. Uh, if you're not familiar with the book of Deuteronomy, uh, let me just real briefly tell you what's going on here. Um, the book of Deuteronomy was delivered by Moses toward the end of Israel's wilderness wandering. So Moses says things to Israel after 40 years of wandering uh, in the wilderness as they prepare to enter the land of Canaan and as Moses prepares to end his ministry with them. Uh, the name Deuteronomy basically means second law. And it's called that because in Deuteronomy, Moses is renewing Israel's covenant with Yahweh before they enter into Canaan. That's actually really helpful for understanding what happens in this book. A lot of what Moses explains here in Deuteronomy is just an, exposi- an exposition of, an explanation of, an expansion of earlier laws and concepts that were explained in places like Exodus, Leviticus, and Numbers. That's going to be very relevant for our discussion. And I think it helps set a context for what you're about to read. So Moses is preparing the people for their entry into Canaan. And as he restates God's commands on tithing and on the sabbatical year, this is what he says. Deuteronomy 14.22 You shall tithe all the yield of your seed that comes from the field year by year. And before the Lord your God in the place that he will choose to make his name dwell there, you shall eat the tithe of your grain and of your wine and of your oil and the firstborn of your herd and flock, that you may learn to fear the Lord your God always. And if the way is too long for you, so that you are not able to carry the tithe when the Lord your God blesses you, because the place is too far from you, which the Lord your God chooses, to set his name there, 
then you shall turn it into money and bind up the money in your hand and go to the place that the Lord your God chooses and spend the money for whatever you desire, oxen or sheep or wine or strong drink, whatever your appetite craves. And you shall eat there before the Lord your God and rejoice, you and your household. And you shall not neglect the Levite who is within your towns, for he has no provision, or portion or inheritance with, with, with you. At the end of every three years, you shall bring out all the tithe of your produce in the same year and lay it up within your towns. And the Levite, because he has no portion or inheritance with you, and the sojourner, the fatherless, and the widow who are within your towns, shall come, eat, and be filled, that the Lord your God may bless you in all the work your hands, of your hands that you do. At the end of every seven years, you shall grant a release. And this is the manner of the release. Every creditor shall release what he has lent to his neighbor. He shall not exact it of his neighbor, his brother, because the Lord's release has been proclaimed. Of a foreigner you may exact it, but whatever of yours is with your brother, your hand shall release. But there will be no poor among you, for the Lord will bless you in the land that the Lord your God has given you for an inheritance to possess. If only you will strictly obey the voice of the Lord your God, being careful to do all this commandment that I command you today. For the Lord your God will bless you as he promised you, and you shall lend to many nations, but you shall not borrow, and you shall rule over many nations, but they shall not rule over you. If among you one of your brothers should become poor, and in any of your towns within your land that the Lord your God is giving you, you shall not harden your heart or shut your hand against your poor brother, but you shall open your hand to him and lend him sufficient for his need, whatever it may be. Take care, lest there be an unworthy thought in your heart. And you say, the seventh year, the year of release is near, and your eye look grudgingly on your poor brother, and you give him nothing. And he cried to the Lord against you, and you be guilty of sin. You shall give to him freely, and your heart shall not be grudging when you give him, because for, the, uh, because for this the Lord your God will bless you in all your work and in all that you undertake. For there will never cease to be poor in the land. Therefore I command you, you shall open wide your hand to your brother, to the needy, and to the poor in your land. Once again, from this passage, I think we can discover two principles that should guide us in the giving of alms. And I would frame these principles in terms of an expectation and an explanation. An expectation and an explanation. In other words, first we discover what God demands from His people in their attitude towards the poor. And then second, we see Him explain why He expects them to have that attitude. Again, there's both an expectation and an explanation. Let's look at first at the expectation. The expectation is this, an open heart. An open heart. God expects His people to have an open heart towards the poor. In short, He wants them to be generous. We see this in verses 7 through 9. Moses says, If among you one of your brothers should become poor in any of your towns within your land that the Lord your God is giving you, You shall not harden your heart or shut your hand against your poor brother, but you shall open your hand to him and lend him sufficient for his need, whatever it may be. Take care lest there be an unworthy thought in your heart, and you say the seventh year, the year of release is near, and your eye look grudgingly on your poor brother, and you give him nothing. And he cried to the Lord against you, and you be guilty of sin. Of course, the general principle of these verses isn't too hard to discern. Uh, Here's the poor... Uh, and they're coming asking for money. And Moses says, when they do that, don't harden your heart towards them. Uh, he actually says something to that effect around eight times in this entire passage. 
He says, do not harden your heart in verse 7, or shut your hand against your brother right after that. In verse 8, he says, you shall open your hand to him. In verse 9, he warns, take care, lest there be an unworthy thought in your heart, and your eye look grudgingly on your poor brother. In verse 10, he says, you shall give to him freely, and your heart shall not be grudging when you give to him. In verse 11, he says again, therefore I command you, you shall open wide your hand to your brother. Depending on how you break that up, that's something like eight different times that there's either some statement warning his listeners against closing their heart towards the poor or encouraging them to be very liberal in their giving. The point that is stated emphatically, emphatically, is that he wants them to be generous. I mean, that's not too hard to pick up on, right? That's, that's pretty apparent. But I wonder if you realize just how generous God is expecting His people to be here. You see, I don't know if you noticed this, but the section that we're in, verses 7 through 11, it's actually actually not about the giving of alms. The section that that has to do with the giving of alms is actually back at the end of chapter 14, where God commands Israel to set aside 10% of their income every three years for an average of just a little over 3% annually in order to take care of the poor in their land. And, and, and that's worth noting, by the way. We don't have to, not time to dig into all the details here, but it appears that according to the Old Testament, Israelites set aside, on average, 33% of their income to some form of what you might consider taxation. According to Leviticus 27, they gave 10% to the support of the Levites who didn't have any physical inheritance in Israel and instead served as a hybrid class of both spiritual and legal authority. Essentially, they served as both pastor and judge. According to 1 Samuel 8, there appears to be another 10% that was levied by the king for the support of his government. That's actually part of the warning that Samuel gave to the people as he pleaded with them not to take a king. He told them that it would mean additional taxation. So 10% to the Levites, 10% to the king, which combined formed Israel's government. Then here in Deuteronomy 14, you have another 10% that's to be set aside by the Israelites for their annual feasts. Obviously, that's not a 10% that's necessarily going to be paid to anyone else. They get to more or less keep that 10% and enjoy it at the feast. But they can't spend that 10% on anything else. It is 10% dedicated to the worship of their God. And then you have the triannual tithe that was collected for the poor in addition to these other three tithes. So that adds up to around 33% of their income. And this, by the way, is in addition to the dedication of the firstborn, which is prescribed at a few different places throughout the Mosaic Law, and the prescription for farmers to leave some of their grain out in the fields for the poor and the sojourner, which is prescribed in Leviticus 19 and Leviticus 23. This is in addition to any prescribed sin or guilt offerings that an Israelite might be obligated to give, and in addition and in addition to vow or free will offerings that an Israelite might choose to give in dedication and worship to God. I guess the point I'm trying to make here is that even before we get to Deuteronomy 15, the Israelites were already required to give well over, well over a third of their income to the support of Israel's religious and civil institutions. And for many, well over uh, 3% of that income was dedicated to the poor as part of Israel's welfare system. 
Now, before we go any further, I just want to note, I just want to note, I'm not making an argument for tithing here in the sense of saying that you're supposed to give 10% of your income to the church. After all, you look at this system, and it's clear that Israel didn't just give 10% of their income to God. They actually gave much, much more. However, much of what they gave would uh, be what we consider taxes today. They just, they, 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 they just gave it to the religious institutions of their society because they were a theocracy. The state and the temple were blended together in their system. It doesn't work that way for us here in America. Our legal system isn't comprised of priests, right? Uh, our rulers are not ordained by God. Our welfare system isn't run by the church. Um, all of that is essentially run by a secular government, so it's hard to make an argument one way or the other for how much you should give to the church based on Old Testament law, seeing as how the church doesn't perform the functions of the Levite and the Davidic kings, uh, the functions they perform in the Old Testament, nor do we celebrate the same festival. So you can't really make an argument for how much to give based on Old Testament law. Just note, however, that God took worship seriously. He took it so seriously that more than a third of what Israelites earned went to both their civil and their religious institutions as well as to their support of the poor. And now we get to Deuteronomy 15. What's described in Deuteronomy 15 isn't tithing, but loans. And loans that are being given as the Sabbath year approaches. I don't know if you know much about loans according to Mosaic Law, but according to Leviticus 25, 36-37, Israelites were not allowed to charge interest on the loans that they were to give to their Jewish brethren. Keep that in mind. They couldn't profit off the loans that they made to the poor. Meaning that if they gave a loan, it could only be as an expression of love. Self-interest couldn't motivate it because they couldn't earn anything off of it. They were basically just giving some of their money out only to get the same amount back later on, and of course, all at the risk that the debtor may never pay any of it back. In other words, there's only something to lose in giving out a loan, and nothing to gain for the Israelite. Well, what we see here at the beginning of Deuteronomy 15 is that in addition to the regulations requiring zero interest loans, God also required that loans be, quote, released at the end of every seven years. At the end of every seven years, that's a description of the Sabbath year. Again, I don't know what you know about the Sabbath year, but earlier in the law, back in Exodus 23, God demanded that just like Israel worked for six days and then rested on the seventh, so also they should work the ground for six years and let it rest on the seventh. The seventh year, when Israel was not allowed to work the land, is called the Sabbath year. Here in Deuteronomy 15, God says, when the seventh year approaches, you will release your brother from his debt. Now, it's not entirely clear today what this means when God says release. There's a good argument to be made that what God is saying is that the debt is merely postponed in the seventh year. That basically you can't collect the debt until the eighth year. That makes sense when you consider that the land is to be left fallow in the seventh year. I mean, how is someone going to pay their debt if they can't work, right? That would seem to make sense of verse 3 as well. When God says it's okay to collect a debt from a foreigner, they were not allowed, or they were not required to observe the Sabbath year, so they do have a means to pay. However, there's also a good argument to be made that release here simply means release, as in canceled. The debt is forgiven. 
Again, you can make a, a case for either position, but either way, it doesn't really matter. You can still see the bind that this would all put an Israelite in when on, in the sixth year, one of their poor brethren comes up to them hungry and says, please, I need your help. Can you loan me some money? Put yourself in their shoes. Here you are. Uh, you've already given more than a third of your income to the support of the temple and of the state. Included within that is a taxation of more than 3% to be given specifically for the poor. And now, not only is this brother, who is obviously having a hard time making an income, right? Coming and asking you for a zero-interest loan, which, realistically, you're never going to see back. But he's asking for it on the eve of the Sabbath year of all times. So like at the very least, you're going to have to wait more than a year before he's even obligated to pay you back. And at the worst, depending on how you interpret verses 1 to 6, it may even mean that he doesn't have to pay you back by, by the end of the year. Or, or he may not have to pay it back at all if he doesn't pay you by the end of the year. And in a lot of circumstances, that could be a very likely scenario, right? I mean, if he's poor, there's a good chance he's not going to get out of that condition in the next six months or the next three months. So in that scenario, this isn't even a loan. It's really more of a gift. What do you do in that scenario? What do you do when your poor brother essentially comes asking for a handout after you've already given so much to the support of the nation's civil and religious institutions? Or, to frame it in modern terms, what do you do when the poor come and ask you for your help after you've already paid your tithes and your taxes, right? After you've supported your church and your state, even including the welfare system that's been established by the state, what do you do then? Do you know what God says through Moses? Do you know what He expects? Do you know what He demands? Verses 7 and 8. You shall not harden your heart or shut your hand against your brother, but you shall open your hand to him and lend him sufficient for his need, whatever it may be. Verse 10, you shall give to him freely, and your heart shall not be grudging when you give to him. God says, give it to him. He says, open your heart to him. Open your hand to him. He says, give. He says, give eagerly, not grudgingly. You should do it cheerfully. And how much? Again, it's there in verse 8. You lend, quote, sufficient for his need, whatever it may be. That's significant. Now, by the time we get to this last statement, maybe we can start to build an argument that says this passage really parallels the type of giving that we're supposed to see in the church in the New Testament. Maybe we can say that God's command to Israel that there be no poor among them parallels what we see in Acts 2 and Acts 4 where it says that there was not a needy person in the church because they were sharing everything in common. Like maybe we can say that what we're seeing in Acts 2 and Acts 4 is the fulfillment of this principle really as a demonstration of the fact that Jesus has established God's new covenant. Like the church becomes a snapshot of the kingdom of heaven. It becomes a snapshot of what Israel could not do under the law to point Israel to the fact that Jesus is the one who can establish and fulfill that law in them. 
Now, I'm not going to get into all the details for that argument here at this time, but there's a strong argument to be made that the principle in this passage is to be applied to the poor and the church primarily, not the poor in the world. All the same. All the same. I don't think we can escape the simple point that God expects His people to be generous to the poor. Right? Exceedingly generous. And yes, we can point to passages that say anyone who's not willing to work, let him not eat. The Bible clearly does not condone laziness. So I'm not saying that you just start handing out money to whoever asks, regardless of their willingness to work. I think the Bible clearly supports the establishment of criteria for who receives help, both in the Old Testament and in the New Testament. All I'm saying, all I'm saying, is that the emphasis here is on generosity. The idea is that the way God wants you to approach giving is like this. Even after you think you've given enough, give still more. Give still more. The attitude that God expects you to have when it comes to the poor is that you should want to give. That you're eager to give. You're not supposed to be making up excuses for why you shouldn't be obligated to help this person. The way God wants you to think is more along the lines that you have to be restrained from giving because your heart is so open to them. Your hand is so generous. You want to help so much. I venture to say that that's probably a pretty radical shift in thinking for most of us. Most people, even most Christians, do not think this way. You bring up the whole idea of giving to people, and we immediately get defensive. We immediately get suspicious. Listen, folks, that's the wrong attitude, plain and simple. If that's your attitude towards giving then you have a spiritually immature approach to money. Plain and simple. And you need to grow up. It's time to grow up. That's not a mature way of thinking about money. Selfishness has nothing to do with Christianity. God wants us to be generous. And in verses 10 through 11, he explained why. That's where we see the second principle on giving in this passage. We've already seen the expectation, now we see the explanation. Moses says, You shall give to him freely, and your heart shall not be grudging when you give to him, because for this the Lord your God will bless you in all your work and in all that you undertake. For there will never cease to be poor in the land. Therefore I command you, you shall open wide your hand to your brother, to the needy, and to the poor in your land. God has told His people He wants them to be generous. Why? We see the answer in verses 10 through 11. The answer is because God will supply their need. Because God will supply their need. That's the second principle we discover in this passage. God takes care of those who give. He supplies their need. One of the things that we see repeated throughout this passage, starting all the way back in verse 4, actually, as God explained the year of release, we see this statement made in a number of different ways. In verse 4 it says... For the Lord will bless you in the land that the Lord your God is giving you for an inheritance to possess. Just like we see this open your heart statement reworded and repeated several different times, so also we see this concept repeated at several points throughout this passage. It happens in verse 4, and then again in verse 6, and then finally it occurs in verse 10. With this statement, God is giving Israel motivation to give. You stop and think about it. And to give out a loan or to release a debt 
heading into the Sabbath year, when you cannot work the ground, that can be kind of risky, right? The reason why a person might hesitate in this scenario is because they may wonder if they're going to have enough to get through the year themselves if they start lending out their resources to others. It's the same thing that we often go through. When someone comes and asks us for money while we're running pretty tight in the budget, we ask ourselves, you know, but if I give, am I still going to have enough for what we need? Well, what God says here is, release the debt, make the loan, because even after you give, I'll still supply you with what you need. And just so you know, that promise is not just applicable to those under Mosaic law. It's made several times throughout the Scripture. You go to Proverbs, for instance, which is a book of wisdom, meaning that it describes generally how God deals with men and women. And it says things like, Whoever is generous to the poor lends to the Lord, and he will repay him for his deed. That's Proverbs 19.17. Whoever gives to the poor will not want, but he who hides his eyes will get many a curse. Proverbs 28.27. In the Sermon on the Mount, Jesus likewise encourages his listeners to repent of their idolatry of mammon, and to seek first the kingdom of God and His righteousness, all while reminding them that God knows what their needs are and will surely supply their need as they do so. Paul also encourages the Corinthians to give by saying in 2 Corinthians 9, 8-11, And God is able to make all grace abound to you, so that having all sufficiency in all things at all times, you may abound in every good work. As it is written, He who has distributed freely, he who has given to the poor, his righteousness endures forever. Paul says, He who supplies seed to the sower and bread for food will supply and multiply your seed for sowing and increase the harvest of your righteousness. You will be enriched in every way to be generous in every way, which through us will produce thanksgiving to God. The idea, once again, is that God will take care of those who give. And he takes care of those who give so that they can continue to give. Essentially, it's the stewardship principle. To those who have, more will be given. To those who do not have, even what they have will be taken away. The one who is faithful faithful with a little will be put in charge over much, whereas the one who is not faithful will not be so entrusted with God's resources. This is an idea that you find throughout the Scripture. It's just how God works. Now, I should probably clarify here, because this can be misunderstood as I'm saying this, this is not to endorse reckless giving. The reason why Paul sends messengers ahead of his arrival to the Corinthians is so that they can spend time thinking through their gift before they give, they, they give it. They're given time to consider the right amount to give. He even tells them not to give too much, actually, in 2 Corinthians 8, 11-15, saying, So now finish doing it, uh, doing it as well, so that your readiness in desiring it may be matched by your completing it out of what you have. For if the readiness is there, it is acceptable according to what a person has, not according to what he does not have. For I do not mean that others should be eased and you burdened, but that as a matter of fairness, your abundance at the present time should supply their need so that their abundance may supply your need, uh, that there may be fairness. As it is written, whoever gathered much had nothing left over, and whoever gathered little had no lack. In other words, what Paul is saying here is that they're to give, again, out of their abundance. They, they, they have something to give. They're not to give into debt or something like that. They're not to give so much that they become a burden on other people. The good and loving thing for them to do is, number one, to take care of their own needs, right? So that other people don't have to take care of them. And then, number two, out of that abundance, give to others. So the idea is not give into poverty. 
Give sacrificially, yes. Maybe go without some things you don't need so you can be generous to others, most certainly. But not sell everything you have and give it away so you have nothing left. That's not what the Scripture means when it says to give in faith. So that should probably be made clear. However, the point still remains. After you've made that thoughtful choice about how much to give, and in that thought process, when you give sacrificially, Trusting that God will supply your need. Again, not recklessly, but sacrificially. The scripture says God will take care of you. He will be faithful in the sense that even though you may have less certainly, you will also most certainly still have enough. This is the explanation that Moses supplies for the expectation. God expects you to give sacrificially. And why does he expect that? Because he will supply your need. You don't have to worry about whether or enough, whether or not you'll have enough after you give. God will take care of you. That's principle number two in this passage. So as American Christians, uh, we don't have a tithe for the poor. Uh, our government does that for us. Uh, and we don't collect a tithe to share with our loved ones at the religious festivals that were designated in the, in the Old Testament. Uh, nor do we observe a Sabbath year. But what we do celebrate is Thanksgiving. And it's a time for us to reflect on the many blessings that God has showered upon us in the past year. This is a holiday where we get to consider how abundantly God has provided for us as we also go out of our way to help those in our community who do not have. There's no better holiday for us to take up an annual benevolence offering than this one, and so that's what we'll do next week. I would encourage you this week as you celebrate Thanksgiving with your family, I'd encourage you to reflect on the two principles that we've talked about today and to prayerfully consider what you might be able to give. Consider that God wants you to be generous. Consider that He'll supply your needs. And then from those two principles, figure out what you might be able to do this Thanksgiving to celebrate God's grace by reflecting His compassion to the world around you. Let's pray.